If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 22. The text is also printed in the bulletin. This is one of the most amazing prayers in all the Bible. Psalm 22. Familiar words probably to a lot of us, um, at least the beginning of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, It confounds us in the uh, apparent contradiction of it. Um, God is teaching us to pray, to speak to him, when it seems like he's far away from us, when it seems like he's abandoned us. Uh, it, It astounds us with its prophetic precision. It's a clear, precisely detailed picture of events surrounding the crucifixion. Uh, that's written a thousand years before the crucifixion. It's staggering to consider that it was written by King David so that his descendant and Lord would take it on his lips at the cross. And it hurts the brain to try to figure out what it means that he would take it on his lips at the cross. The God-man, the God-man would pray this prayer that God had forsaken him. Can we figure it all out? I don't know. But the church has always loved this psalm, disturbing as it is. And the fact that Jesus prayed this prayer as one of us, as he suffered on the cross, it means everything and it changes everything. It ultimately means that you're not alone and you never will be. That's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you've not left us alone. You've not left us without a word about yourself. You've not left us without a way of knowing you, having a relationship with you. All of this comes to us through Jesus Christ and through these holy scriptures that testify to him. So we pray that you'd help us to read and think about and hear, consider your word, and um, let your spirit have your way in us so that we be changed according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted And you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, 
A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down, shall bow all, all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall proclaim, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think in order to be able to talk about this psalm, uh, we have to look just real simply at the basic structure of it. It comes in two main parts. First, the psalmist is having a terrible time. And then he's having a wonderful time. There's a lot of hard stuff at the beginning and it gets better at the end. I mean, I know that's almost a a childish reduction, but it's significant because with our God, that's how the big stories tend to go. They start off pretty bad, and then they get really good. So the first 21 verses, it's the first page, actually, of the text that's in the bulletin. Um, The first part of the psalm, they're, they're, they're a lament, those verses, lament. And verses 22 to 31, that's the end, that's the second page that's printed there in the bulletin, uh, is a praise. So the first part, the, the lament part, it alternates back and forth between complaints about the psalmist's suffering, complaints about the circumstances and the pain, and then alternate, uh, alternates with the remembrances of the perfect history of God's faithfulness. So that can be a helpful approach to you in your prayers uh, in hard times. Um, Things are tough right now. You seem distant, God. But you've always been faithful to your people. Here's the scriptural record of that. Things are tough right now. You seem distant, God. But you've always been faithful to me. Things are tough right now. And you seem distant, God. Please do not be far off. Come quickly. Deliver me. Save me. And then right there at the end of verse 21, it happens. God saves. 
Because that's who he is. That's what he does. That's, that's the kind of God that has made himself known to us. The God who saves. And everything in the psalm changes after that. Everything in our lives really changes after salvation. So there's the basic structure. Uh, now let's see the substance of it. Get into the meaning. What is the psalmist lamenting? What's the problem? What is that first very difficult part about? The psalmist is suffering the greatest pain that there ever is, um, that there ever was. Sorry, ladies, if you thought that was childbirth. Um, The greatest pain is the pain of rejection. The deep pain of rejection and isolation. Absolute rejection. Universal rejection. Dehumanizing. I'm a worm and not a man. Violent rejection. Undeserved, unjust rejection. Scorned by mankind, he says. Surrounded by enemies. Trouble is near. And there is none to help. Not to drastically understate it. He's basically saying there's no community. That is a drastic understatement. That's what he's saying. There's no community. There are no relationships. In fact, there's not even humanity. The enemies are not really portrayed as humans. They're portrayed as vicious wild beasts, bulls and lions and dogs. All have turned against him. And the worst of it all is that even the perfectly faithful God, the perfectly faithful God, at least seems to have abandoned and forsaken him, to be distant from him. It says in the verse, first two verses, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Down in verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. Here are these people killing me. You're the one laying me in the dust of death. And that's as bad as it can get. The pain of rejection from God himself, the perfectly faithful God. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, um, he's got a great little book on the Psalms. He said, whatever conceivable peril there is on earth is known by the Psalms. All the pain, all the peril is known by the Psalms. He says they, they do not try to deny it or try to deceive us about it with pious words. They allow it to stand as a severe attack on the faith. What does it mean when the perfectly faithful God has forsaken me? It's an attack on our faith. It would be impossible for you, knowing this psalm and others like it that exist in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures really are very honest about our pain, about our suffering, about plight and peril. It would be impossible for you to experience something so terrible that it was unknown to the Holy Scriptures. It would be impossible for you to experience something that was so terrible that it was unknown to the singer of this psalm. He is utterly forsaken and alone. His identity and his faith are in absolute jeopardy. He's on the brink of death. And God's faithfulness is called into question. 
And then there's salvation. Then there's salvation again in verse 21, that that hinge. And the psalmist then celebrates and proclaims the faithfulness of the God who had forsaken him. And one of the main transformations that you see in the movement from the first part to the second part, the thing fills up this second part of the psalm, is the complete reversal of all that rejection that he suffered before. The spiritual togetherness of the worshiping community. He's not alone anymore. Where before he was utterly alone, now he's, uh, he's telling God's name to his brothers. He was surrounded only by hostile evil, evildoers. Now he's proclaiming God's name to his brothers in the midst of the congregation. Where before he was scorned by mankind and despised by the people, that is Israel... Now all Israel would join him in glorifying God, and all the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations, worship the one true God with him. And because of it. And it turns out that God has not hidden his face from the afflicted after all. God proves his perfect faithfulness even to those who go down to the dust. Even to those who die, God proves his perfect faithfulness. It's like the brave Hobbit Hobbit intimated, uh, everything sad is coming untrue. Everything sad is coming untrue in this psalm. Maybe that sounds too good to be true. Maybe it sounds trite, like a platitude that, uh, that actually just offends and makes the pain of suffering worse. Don't tell me silly things like, it'll all get better in the end. Do you suffer the pain of rejection? Have you suffered it? Have you lost hope for true community? Do you feel, or have you ever felt, so alone that nobody could possibly understand? That you would feel abandoned by everybody? Nobody could possibly relate to you. You felt so alone. Do you despair of God's favor? And God's presence, do you feel abandoned by all and forsaken by God? Have you ever felt that way? Here's the most important thing about this psalm. It was written so that Jesus would pray it as one of us on the cross. That that the Son of God, as a human being, would pray it on the cross. That's why it was written. It's uh, It's a prophetic psalm. David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus came onto the scene. David wrote it, but we know that David never experienced anything like this. We have a pretty good record of David's life and the major experiences of his life. Nothing like this. It's so specific in all of its details. It is describing the crucifixion. It is called the Psalm of the Cross throughout the history of the church. So it's a prophetic psalm. Ultimately, it's fulfilled in the promised Messiah, in the Christ. And it wasn't just a prediction. It wasn't just a prediction about Jesus so that we could all be amazed, look at the amazing ability of the biblical writers to see into the future and see all these little tiny details. That's amazing. But it's not just a prediction about Jesus. It was the script for Jesus. God himself was writing the future. He wrote the script for Jesus in Psalm 22. It was God's plan From even before, way before David, way before humanity, 
Before the beginning of the world, it was God's plan to send his beloved son through this hell. That's what it is. It's hell. It was his plan to send him through it as our representative, to gather up all of our God-forsakenness to himself, to bear that absolute universal dehumanizing violent rejection that we actually deserved. He didn't deserve it. We did. We actually deserved it. We, ch- we chose it for ourselves. That's what sin is, choosing hell like that. But since this is the Father's plan, and since Jesus was perfectly faithful, he went willingly into this hell on the cross. He was scorned by mankind. He was despised by his own people. He was mocked with the very language of this psalm, identical language, as Sam read in our gospel reading. He was surrounded by enemies that were hungry for his death, and they were fighting pettily over his clothes. He was tormented in body and soul. He was thirsty. He was pierced through his hands and feet. Yet he remained faithful. At any moment, he could have come down, but he didn't. He remained faithful. He was rejected by all, but he was faithful. To the bitter end, faithful to the God who had forsaken him on our account. No one's ever suffered the pain of loneliness like that. No one's ever suffered the pain of rejection like that. No one's ever prayed this prayer like he has when Jesus hung on the cross and prayed this prayer. So George Herbert wrote in the 1600s, uh, this is a quote on the front of the bulletin. It's a little part of this great uh, poem, The Sacrifice, that uh, I think you you could just read it online if you don't have a collection of his works. He says uh, somewhere toward the end, of his poem, he's quoting Christ. He's speaking as if he is Jesus hanging on the cross throughout this poem. And he says, But, O my God, my God, why leavest thou me, the Son in whom thou dost delight to be? My God, my God, never was grief like mine. Jesus continued in his faithful profession, My God. My God. Even though God was casting him into the outer darkness, he entrusted himself to God even when God was forsaking him. He cried out with a loud voice, the cry of dereliction, as it's known, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows the answer. He knew the answer. He was forsaken so that we might be accepted. That's all over the place in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, one of those famous places. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We sing it, how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That's why it was happening. That's why it was happening. He was cast into the outer darkness for us. He took our sins out there with him so that we wouldn't have to bear them ourselves so that we could be brought into the light of home 
in God's presence, that God's presence would be our home forever. He knew why God was forsaking him, so why did he cry out? I don't think it's just as a reference to refer to Psalm 22. Why did he cry out? He cried out because it was real, and it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. It was infinitely, eternally terrible. God didn't swoop in at the last minute, in the 11th hour, so to speak, to save him. It was past the 11th hour, the bell had tolled, and Jesus died on the cross. He cried out because he was lost. He was lost so that we might be saved. So that we would never have to pray this prayer like he does. Now the prayer has been changed for us. And now it's impossible for us to be truly so alone as Jesus was on that cross. It'll never happen to you. Even if it seems that all the world has turned against us, even if it seems like God himself has forsaken us, because God himself became a human being in order to pray this prayer as one of us, for us, with us, on the cross, you're not alone and you never will be. If you pray this psalm, you're joining with Jesus, who is God in the flesh. It's his psalm first, and you're welcome to pray it with him in hard times. Jesus is with you in prayers like this. You'll never be alone in prayers like this. And God is with you in Jesus. You cannot know him as anything other than your God. My God. My God. Whatever grief, whatever pain of rejection, whatever suffering you face, he's with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer again said, Now we know that there is no longer any suffering on earth in which Christ will not be with us, suffering with us, and praying with us. Christ, the only helper. Now, whenever you face what seems like cosmic rejection, like absolute aloneness and isolation. Whatever, whenever you face something that seems like that, you know it isn't that. It isn't that. Not really. In fact, what else is it than fellowship when you join Jesus in praying this psalm? What else is it than fellowship? It's the fellowship of his sufferings because he knows rejection like you never could. It's fellowship of his sufferings. It's the great privilege of knowing him in sufferings that are like his, Philippians 3, and therefore also knowing him and the power of his resurrection. And that's where this psalm takes us, because Jesus prayed it. It doesn't end with his absolute forsakenness and death. It goes through that, but it doesn't end there, and neither will your life with God end with your absolute forsakenness and death. Your sense of aloneness. Verse 21. You've rescued me. For Jesus, it was after the 11th hour. It was after the bell tolled. It was after his death. God rescued Jesus because Jesus had been perfectly faithful, even to the point of death on a cross. 
God rescued him. Rescued him from what? Rescued him from what? From forsakenness. From abandonment. From rejection. And isolation in hell. When God raised him from the dead, the main thing that meant was eternal life in communion with God. And in community. In love. That's what that meant. That's what this psalm moves on to celebrate so emphatically. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He's not alone anymore. And he never will be. His relationship to God is restored. He's surrounded by brothers and sisters in the church, the great multitude of the heavenly host. Jesus shares this great belonging with us. And he calls us all to join him in praising God together forever. Jesus has made it so that we can all say with him, we say with him, my God, my God. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's joined us in it. In fact, he's taken it on himself uniquely and vicariously in ways that we never could so that we would never be alone again, so that we would live with him in this life with all its hardships and after the resurrection forevermore. You're not alone and you never will be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this does seem too good to be true. Uh, It's the greatest truth that the world has ever known. It's the truth, it really is the truth that you've planned from before the beginning of the world. You've executed perfectly in sending your son, Jesus, to live and die and live again for us. It's the truth that your spirit convicts us of and makes us to know and gives us comfort and assurance through. So we pray this truth would always be in our hearts that um, even though we pray this prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It'll be new because of Jesus, because he's with us in this prayer. He's led us in this prayer So we're not alone. Even in a prayer like this, you've not forsaken us. You never will. We pray that we would know that, not just in our minds, intellectually, that we would know that in our hearts in ways that uh, change our lives. That the the promise of the resurrection founded in Christ's resurrection, the promise and the hope of our resurrection and our eternal life with you, would change our lives now and forever. We would be a testimony to the joy that comes in the morning, even though the night was filled with death and grief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.